Hello and welcome to the Geeky Medics podcast. My name is Josh Chambers and this podcast selfishly gives me an excellent excuse to interview interesting doctors and healthcare professionals from a range of different backgrounds. It really is difficult to know what to specialise in and in particular it can be difficult to know what certain careers are actually like in practice. With our guests we drill down into why they chose the speciality they're in and what it's really like to do the job. If you've ever used Talkspace or been interested in toxicology at all, this episode is for you. This week we're joined by Professor Edelston, a consultant in clinical toxicology. I hope you enjoy. So my name is Michael Edelston. I'm the Professor of Clinical Toxicology in Edinburgh, which means I have an honorary contract with the NHS in Lothian. So I spend one day a week seeing patients on the wards in the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh. And I spend about one day a week working with the Poison Service, the National Poisons Information uh, Service, which I'm one of the 16 consultants. We have the biggest on-call in the UK. We cover 70 million people when we're on-call. So there's no other specialty with such a big on-call. And the rest of the time I spend uh, working in the university doing my research, which is either UK-based or in Asia. Professor Edison, thank you for, for joining us on the podcast. Um, I suppose the first question is, knowing what you do, where did your interest in toxicology come from? Well, my interest in toxicology came in clinical school, but it took a long time. It took me 12 years to get through medical school. I wasn't terribly focused. So I started off by having a year off. So I got my position in Cambridge and then I took a year off spent seven or eight months in Africa birdwatching most of the time and traveling and hitchhiking on back of trucks, seeing places, occasionally seeing the odd patient, but really mostly birdwatching. And then I started in Cambridge, did two years of medicine and the third year of, uh, of research, which was immunology, and really got the bug of doing research during that year. But I'd always done, I'd always done medicine to do research. I wanted to be a researcher. Mm. And my biology teacher said, it'd be stupid to do ornithology, do medicine, then do research full-time as a medic, and then you can do your bird watching in your free time. It's <laughs> probably good advice. And, uh, make it a life job, he said to me. He was an entomologist who'd never got a grant, and he ended up teaching me biology in Blackburn. So third year immunology in the lab. I was in the lab seven days a week. I was there longer than the PhD students. I just loved that time. I had lectures three times a week, and the rest of the time I was in the lab. Mm. Then I ended up negotiating to go to California. So I tried to do a master's in American literature for fun for a year between clinical and preclinical. And they accepted me and they said, well, have you got any money? And I said, well, no, I don't have any money. Is that a problem? And they said, yeah, that's a problem. So I didn't do that. I ended up going, instead of going to Berkeley, I went to San Diego and worked in the lab for three years. I'd been on the governing body of Cambridge. So I, re- I knew the rule books really well. And I realized I could get a Cambridge PhD from doing my work in California. And the nice thing about that was Californian PhDs in only seven years. I really didn't want a seven year PhD. And also because I was more than 35 miles away from the bells of St. Mary's in Cambridge, I didn't have to pay any fees. So I got a free PhD for three years while being paid to work in a lab in California and swim every day and go on the beach and climb in the mountains. It's kind of nice. I worked hard, but that stuff, I was also had a nice time. Yeah, And then, Someone kindly organized me to get a, a technician job in Cambridge, during which time I wrote up my PhD. Then finally, I went back to Oxford for clinical school. 
after four years of pottering around doing kind of a nice time. So just before I went back, I was told about this amazing professor in, Cambridge, in Oxford called David Worrell, who was also interested in birds and snakes and did lots of tropical research. So I went to meet him about a month into my time. I said, I'd like to work with him. Can I do a project with you? And so I got myself a summer project and I ended up going to Sri Lanka for two months, the end of my first year as an undergrad, as a clinical student. And there I was going to work on a snake bite study, but there was no snake bites because it was the wrong season. There was no rain. There was no one getting, no one walking and cutting paddies, so they weren't getting bitten. And then I ended up um, standing on the medical wards and just watching and looking and seeing what was coming through the doors. And what I realized was patient after patient after patient was coming through the doors with um, either plant poisoning or pesticide poisoning. And that was what started me off, seeing patients and realizing there was nobody working on this. There were no papers. There was no journal focused on this at all. And because I'd done my PhD at that point, I was interested, I was always into research. I just started writing about it. And so I then took a year off medical school again. I wrote the Oxford Handbook of Tropical Medicine. And so my, between my, third, my second and third year of clinical school, I was in Sri Lanka for a year, uh, living in a little house in Anuradhapura in the hospital every day, seeing patients, eating in the chamri, incredibly spicy food, losing weight, getting brown. And then finally, I came back to clinical school. And I actually came back to Oxford for my, for my exams and my clinical jobs. And I'd applied for two very particular jobs in Oxford. I didn't want firm B because their ward rounds were eight hours. And I really didn't like the idea of an eight hour ward round as a house officer. So I only applied to firm A and firm C. And I didn't want a Thai job. I wanted to go to Scotland, climbing in the mountains for my surgical job. So I only asked for four jobs. So I flew in from Sri Lanka. I went to the office and said, oh, what time is my interview tomorrow? And they went, ah, oh, I don't know. They just pulled this big sheet out, looked at one side, then they turned the sheet over and there were two names on the back. They says, okay, we rejected you. You didn't get any interviews. And I just flown all the way back from Sri Lanka with the interview. So I was like, hmm, okay, that was a bit crushing. <laughs> and I could see the point because I had been fairly absent, shall we say, quite <laughs> yeah. a lot of time. But, uh, anyway, so yeah, I went to Oxford. So I finished off in Oxford. Uh, I didn't get any house jobs in Oxford, but luckily other places took pity on me. I went to Brighton for my first house job. And then I went to uh, Paisley in near Glasgow for my second house job. So I climbed the mountains. I was always doing beautiful things. But um, I had a great SHO in Brighton who took my last week off. So I had to look after the whole ward for a week and then get in the, make sure they're all in bed, make sure everything was happening. Got four o'clock, get in the car, drive madly to Glasgow via a friend in York who was doing the night shifts. I got his bed for four hours to sleep for four hours to get into Glasgow for 8.30 the next morning for the handover because I had to be there. And my, uh, my SHO was, she's, I think she's a GP near Brighton now. And one day I said to her, why do you do nothing? Why do I do everything? You do absolutely nothing on this team. She goes, but you're so good, Michael. Why would I want to do anything? You're such a good house officer. I was like, hmm, okay. <laughs> I guess that's the reason not to be a good house. I was, I was a Flattery. dream house officer. Yeah, I was. Uh, no, I I peaked as a house officer, and I've been coming down ever since. <laughs> it's never. I've never been quite as good as I was as a house officer. I mean, uh, it so, sounds like you, you you peaked as a medical student. Oh my god, you put me. Uh, you, no, no, I was a damn good house officer. I was a good medical house officer. Thank you very much. You, I remember the the first weekend we were like there were two of us. I used to work hundreds of hours those times. Mm. And I remember on the Sunday afternoon, she called me weeping down the phone saying, I've been asked to put Kenya in this patient on the diabetes board. Please come and help me. So I got there and we found a patient with no arms and no legs. 
on the bed and she's been trying to cannulate this guy for about an hour and the both of us looked at each other and went nope we need a register at this point so yeah <laughs> i've never had that i mean i I, th- I thought i was fairly active as a medical student but i, I didn't even know you could take that many years out i mean that's a you know i suppose mm. it allowed you years, to well. it allowed you to sort of... i had my 30th birthday as a as a house officer having started as a 17 year old that's remarkable i mean so how many years were you the, you know at medical school i mean not yeah, what do you mean by at medical school exactly? Wait, so I did, did three years undergraduate, then and then four years for a PhD, and then two years of um, two years as a clinical student, kind of behaving, but taking every opportunity to go to Asia if I could. Yeah, and then I took a year off in Sri Lanka, being a medical student again, but an absent one, and then I did a year of being a good medical house officer yeah. in, in Oxford. Wow, and so I, I mean, what? The, I don't even know where to begin. So then, so I suppose, you know, your interest for for sort of tropical medicine and things is clear and where that's where that's come from. And writing the Oxford Handbook, which, you know, what an incredible thing to do just generally. Um, Well, it was fun because, you know, we we were my I wrote it with a friend who'd been in Brazil. So he was a guy who had ulcerative colitis as his medical student. So he ended up taking a year off to, to rehabilitate and went off to Brazil and wandered in the jungles in Brazil. I was in Sri Lanka and the two of us realized there was no handbook yeah. for these places. There was the Oxford Handbook Clinical Medicine, which was superb, mm. but wasn't really terribly relevant to all the diseases we were seeing and all the differentials were wrong. So I went to David Worrell and I said, you know, Stephen and I would like to write this. He said, don't be stupid. Books ruin marriages. You know, it kills your life. He's like, well, we're not married. That's kind of, yeah. we haven't even got girlfriends. So you know, that's Perfect kind of timing. Really not a bad place to start. Yeah. Was, yeah. So he put us in contact with the Oxford OUP and we wrote a few example pages and they said yes. And then we wrote it. And everybody go, why were these two medical students writing the Oxford Handbook? They don't know anything. It's like, well, that's yeah, kind of true. But we were very good at organizing other yeah. people's information to make it useful for a junior doctor. We knew what a junior doctor yeah. wanted. And we were very good at putting it together in a format that worked. And um, then the second edition, we gave it to professionals. So David, um, Rob Davidson took over and also um, Rob Wilkinson. So two serious consultant professors of tropical medicine took it over the second edition. But it was still our idea and it was still our format. And it was fun to write. But once you start revising, it's much less fun. So, yeah. yeah. Wow. I mean, I mean... Yeah. And so so moving on, so then, you know, going into to specialist training, did you do sort of medical training pathway? Did you... Kind of. I mean, I knew when I'd left Sri Lanka, went back to Oxford, I found a mentor and a man called John Reynolds, who was a clinical pharmacologist. So clinical toxicology is within clinical pharmacology and therapeutics. So I found myself a mentor when I was there. And he was wonderful to talk to and explore and ideas with. But also, I, I'm very multidisciplinary. So I talked to psychiatrists, I talked with renal physicians, anybody who talked about poisoning. Then did my house jobs and then did SHO jobs. I didn't want to do the London circuit. And again, I didn't really want to be tied into a two-year SHO job. So I did a year in Brighton, six months in the Royal Free doing neurology and six months doing infectious diseases in uh, Northwood Park. And during that time, I was writing my intermediate fellowship. So I got an intermediate fellowship as an SHO and started it as soon as I'd finished, as soon as I got MRCP and been allowed to leave SHOs which is, it was two years, 362 days because the week changeover. So I got out really fast. I got out, I did less than two years of SHO and became a registrar. And I did locums for six months while waiting to go to Sri Lanka. 
go do stuff there. And that was just in basic medicine, neurology, infectious diseases, yeah, general medicine. Yeah. And, you know, from, from that point onwards, then your research or your interests sort of moved to pesticides and was that sort of based on what what you've seen sort of abroad yeah very much so my year off i also i wrote the oxyhemotropical medicine i also wrote papers about i did a randomized control trial of oleander poisoning of using anti-digoxin antibodies mm. against the cardiac glycosides in oleander seeds which is not like foxgloves at all but they're related and so i did that as an rct and i got a, a lancet paper as an sho resulting from that plus a BMJ paper talking about the whole issue. And then when I was a junior doctor, I was constantly writing papers and trying to trying to find, to get things into the Lancet was my major ambition really. But um, the clinical toxicology came during those times. Even though I was doing general medicine, I was always thinking about pharmacology and toxicology. Mm. And then I had to, when I wrote the application to be an intermediate fellow, which is six years funding to go and do research and get more training, my mentor said to me, no, no, I don't work on pesticides. You have to work on what I want to work on. But kindly, he, and I sat down and said, no, there's no one working on this. Someone has to start working on it. You should be supporting me. And he, you know, he changed his mind. He did have money on me failing finals, which I thought was a bit cruel. He told me one day he had 10 pounds in the, um, in the pot in the medical school that I'd fail, medical, I'd fail finals. And um, was he right or not? I didn't. No, he wasn't. I passed. <laughs> Good. Um, so... So I wonder if we could just explore the pesticides for for, for a second. I mean, I I, um, I did my elective in in South Africa, and I I, I did see a couple of patients who who had sort of um, you know pesticide well, poisoning, and 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 it's not really it's not really something you see commonly in the UK. Um, I think you know part one MRCP would tell you farmers would uh, would be the the prime people, but let's, okay, let's step back a second. So. People self-harm. So as a clinical toxicologist, I deal with patients who self-harm, mm. who take overdoses classically. And people take overdoses to communicate. They're not normally wishing to die. They're expressing their anger, their distress, the fact they can't see a solution. They're really communicating. Now, what you communicate is what you culturally use and what's available. So in the UK, we communicate with paracetamol. We have 100,000 paracetamol overdoses a year in the UK alone. Mm. But we have a good, a good antidote for them. The difference is in rural South Africa, rural Sri Lanka, rural... Asia, Africa, South America, is that 80% of people are farmers. So they have pesticides in their house. Therefore, when they grab something at close, it's a pesticide. While in the UK, maybe one or 2% of the population works in farming. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're not allowed to have highly potent pesticides in our houses here. We can go to the to B&Q and buy a diluted form, which is pretty safe. While in Asia, you can buy a 40%, 100% really concentrated stuff, which you're using in your paddy, but you store it in your house. Mm. And so when you self-harm, that's what you grab. So if you compare the UK with Sri Lanka, the rates of self-harm are almost identical. Mm. But the suicide rate, which is, which is case fatality times self-harm rate, yeah. are much higher because the case fatality is 50 times higher, not because the self-harm rate's higher. And not because there's a higher intent to die, but culturally, that's what's available. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. And so I suppose I hadn't really thought of your work as a clinical toxicologist in the UK as that. I mean, yeah, I mean, you're constantly I mean, we wouldn't we wouldn't be sort of consulting tox, tox base necessarily for 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 paracetamol. You know, it's so common in, in emergency departments. But, you know, mm. you see all sorts of things um you know i've just done an ed job where you're you know constantly using tox base i saw something on twitter the other day of um saying pediatrician saying you know 
going on talk space for cinnamon or, or uh, you know, over- overdose or, you know, I think I had a patient of Octenosan, the MRSA uh, sort of shampoo that they drunk by accident. Okay. I mean, you must see some mm-hmm. some very random things. Well, I was reading, I mean, I, I, we, so every Wednesday we have a meeting and we go through in, in Edinburgh, go through talk space and revise the entries. They're supposed to be revised every four years, but the commonest things are revised every year. So paracetamol we have to look at every year, mm. the top 100. You know, the top one, the 17,000 poisons or so on there, the top 100 probably accounts for 80% of the activity across the UK. Yeah. So we need to make sure that the eight, that 100 are, are really good. Mm. And the rest, I mean, there's things in there which are never, ever looked at, but they're there because one day someone might do. I was looking at nutmeg. You talk about cinnamon. I mean, nutmeg has myricetin in it, which is like LSD. So if you take enough nutmeg, you can get yourself high. It's quite a lot of work, a lot of scraping, et cetera, but you can get there if you want to. So it's quite interesting seeing the level of persistence, level of effort people put into the whatever they consume, whether it's recreational or yeah. self harm. Yeah, and yeah, you, everything. Yeah, and you, you talked about your on call being the largest on call, uh, <laughs> covering. I mean, so what? I mean, you presumably you get you know people phoning you in the middle of the night sometimes, having sort of no idea how to treat this overdose of X, Y, and Z. So the poison system's set up in a way that the public doesn't call us, the public calls an NHS 111. Mm. The NHS 111 goes onto Talkspace or calls through. And when you call through to the MPS, you get through to a specialist in poisons information who's normally a pharmacist or a scientist or a nurse graduate mm. who's got experience. And then they, they take most of the calls. So 40,000 calls a year wow. go to those people. And then they decide when they want to transfer onto a consultant. So maybe three and a half or 4,000. So 10% roughly of those calls get through to a consultant. So some nights I'll be here, there'll be no calls at all because the spies are handling all the calls. Sometimes, I remember one night I had six overnight and it was kind of bad because by the sixth one, I was so tired. I've been every hour, all night. I've woken up and I work the day and I work the day after. I don't get a day off after this. Yeah. I'm busy. I haven't got time to take a day off. Uh, I mean, as, as well as your on-call work we've just described, you also work in Edinburgh uh, at a sort of poison service as a, mm. as a clinical toxicologist. Mm. And, and not every hospital has a, you know, has a toxicologist on site. Um, I mean, there are four poison centres across the UK now, and each of us has a ward or ward area where patients will go to and we'll see them. So 10% of medical patients in the UK, medical admissions are due to poisoning. Oh, wow. So there's a huge number of patients across the UK. Yeah. And then four units, we actually look after our own patients. So we get, you know, we get basic clinical practice with poison patients, plus we have the telephone calls. So each of us maybe gets 200, 300 phone calls a year about a patient. So we have the kind of UK-wide experience plus our own experience in the wards. Mm. So it's very useful to have both. Yeah. So I'll do a ward round roughly once a week and I'll go in at 8.30 and we'll see all the patients in the hospital with poisoning. So either we'll go to ED, we'll go to the intensive care and we'll come to our own little ward and we'll see all those patients. And then really we're glamorous discharge agents. I mean, all we do is discharge patients, which people quite like because everyone's quite nervous about poison patients. Yeah. Often junior doctors are very nervous about poison patients, partly because of the variety, as you say, there's so many different poisons, but also there's quite a lot of aggression and sometimes disinhibition with the drugs that are taken. Mm. And so you have a, you know, a young junior doctor going in there, dealing with really very complex patients who are sometimes quite hard to deal with. Talking to them is easily the best way and just talking and talking and talking and talking generally gets you out of most situations. But as a junior doctor, you need exposure. So in Edinburgh, they're lucky because they come on our ward rounds we always have an FY1 on our ward rounds and it gives them some exposure and some confidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I've never, I mean, certainly in Bristol where I work, there's, you know, we don't, we don't have that type of service here mm. and it's, that's 
yeah, it's amazing. You can do those types of wall drawings. It also gives us uh, the questions they want to work on. You know, you talk about what's the research question you want to work on. It comes from the patients I see in front of me. Mm -hmm. And that's why I do the research. I do. Mm. That's very much the research I do is based on patients either here or in Sri Lanka of what I've seen. Yeah, yeah. And and so do you go back to Sri Lanka um, regularly? Um, or do you just sort of, do you have toxicologists out in Sri Lanka that you work with? We have a team. I mean, I've been working in Sri Lanka now for 25 years, so I've built up a reasonably good relationship with many people. Um, I think the most important thing about being a researcher as a clinical researcher is being seen on the ward, being useful, doing things. Mm. Then people begin to trust you. If you just turn up once in a while and they don't really know who you are, everyone's very suspicious and it's quite difficult. The more time you simply spend on the ward, seeing patients, seeing patients, seeing patients, allows you to do research. So now I have one big study in Bangladesh and one big study in Sri Lanka going on. The Sri Lanka study is a public health intervention. So we're working with shopkeepers so they don't sell pesticides to people who are then going to drink it around the corner, which is really good. They don't want to do that either because they get a lot of a grief from the community if someone buys a pesticide from their shop and then dies. But then in Bangladesh, we're doing studies with people um, who are organophosphorus or carbamate poisoned, and we're giving them calcium channel blockers with the idea that we can, re re we can reduce the acetylcholine release presynaptically and also change how the muscle behaves to that overstimulation you get from the acetylcholine, which is everywhere in the body. So there's a two clinical trials going on. There are teams in place, partly based here in the UK, partly based in Bangladesh or Sri Lanka. We have conference calls either every two weeks or every month. I go there I mean, because of COVID, I've hardly been there at all. But even over the last 10 years, a lot of it's been done by Skype or GoToMeeting or Zoom. And but you do need, I think, to have had that relationship built up in advance. It's very difficult to build up relationships, do these kind of trials if you don't know the people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, what sort of recommendations would you have for, for medical students and junior doctors? I suppose, I suppose maybe first off interested in toxicology, but but second fold sort of interested in research generally, you know, even from a medical medical student point of view. So we occasionally have people come and spend a week with us in Edinburgh. Um, as a as an FY2, often they get a, they're allowed to spend week, taster weeks, I think, yeah. when they come and spend time where they're focused on what they're what they see. So that's really works really well. We have great, great people. Um, there aren't many. So clinical toxicology is a subspecialty of clinical pharmacology. So people want need to want to do medicines, need to want to understand medicines, how you use them, how humans, how they behave in humans, and also kind of policy at a national or regional level. Within that area, then clinical toxicology is a really interesting area. But there aren't many hospitals in the UK with a clinical toxicology group. People may have a clinical toxicology interest and be able to work with their acute medicine and their emergency medicine colleagues to set up a system up. But there are relatively few places to be able to go where you just do clinical toxicology. I think one of the key things about research is what I love doing. I love seeing patients. And I love So what I do now is I only see toxicology patients in Edinburgh, but I do locums in rural practice in North Scotland. And in Sri Lanka, for my intermediate fellowship, I spent four years just seeing poison patients. So I effectively chose which patients I saw, and I just did them. I did them quite well. But also, I took that workload off other people. So I became popular because I reduced a fairly significant workload. But as a researcher, I think what people often get pushed to go down the laboratory approach, that you have to be a laboratory person for three years with a PhD to become a researcher. I don't think that's true. I did that during my PhD but I would very much encourage people who wanted to do PhDs. You can do clinical based PhDs with the patients doing mechanistic work. We can do, you know, pharmacology is very much about patient beds. So clinical pharmacology and clinical toxicology is about bedside research. 
and I work with laboratories to do all the basic stuff I have to do, but I myself am not in the lab doing all the lab work. So I don't think people, if people want to do research, you want to do clinical research, there's lots of opportunities now in diabetes and cardiology and so many areas. You don't have to go down that lab route, which is definitely the favored route in the past. And for some people, there's a really good route, but it shouldn't be for everybody. Mm-hmm. And what, what would you say are the best bits and the worst bits of your job? Well, sometimes those three o'clock in the morning calls are quite hard. Um, I'm not sure they're the worst bit. Because I mean, I, when, whenever we're on the ward, we're also on call for the national phones. And sometimes it's quite difficult to get anything done because these phone calls keep coming through. So sometimes I get a bit grouchy about those and my colleagues tolerate me. Um, I mean, the best thing about my job is the complete freedom I have to do anything I want. Any idea I have, I can explore it. So we're now trying to think about, you know, should we be giving flumazenil to every patient with a recreational drug overdose? Because so many of them have got benzos on board. We've always said don't do. Yet the safety data from the state suggests it's not that hazardous. And actually, if 90% of people dying with drug deaths in Scotland have got benzos on board, should we be giving them flumazenil? We don't know. And until we've done it, we don't know if flumazenil and um, benzos are an epiphenomenon because benzos are basically in the Scottish water and everybody has it in them. Or is it actually killing these people? Was it actually just there as a, as a coincidence? So the thing I like most about my life is the fact I can see patients one day a week. I can do one day a week of poison service. Then I can do the rest of the time working with colleagues all across the world, doing all these different types of things. Um, with any idea that comes to my head, I try and write up a grant and do something on it. I guess there's a couple of things I've learned, especially as a researcher. I'm talking to researchers now, mm-hmm. is that we all start off as clinicians. And it's wonderful being a clinician, but actually there's very little we can do with the patient in front of you. It's so much more about stepping back into the public health sphere. And actually, as we do our research, to think in multidisciplinary ways. So I work with anthropologists to understand why do people self-harm? What's the purpose of self-harm? How can I alter self-harm? And I work with agriculturalists about what pesticides can people use instead of the really nasty ones that are killing people. I, I mean, I've, so I work with a woman called Leah Utyasheva now, who's a human rights lawyer. We're now arguing about the human rights approach to pesticide poisoning. All the things I never thought about as an FY1, FY2, seeing these patients. But the more I do, the more broad I get, and the more interesting it is, and the more different facets, how you approach things. I also think about research problems as a, two things, either as a, a clay ball or as a brick wall. There's the clay wall, there's the clay ball, I'm trying to create a perfect sphere. And every paper I do, every study I do, I'm trying to take another shaving off and trying to get nearer and nearer to that perfect ball, which answers all the questions. We'll never get there, but it's an ambition to keep working that way. And the other thing is that I write lots of papers, and some of those papers are in really great journals and they're huge pieces of work, and sometimes they're much smaller. And you could argue there's not much point in doing the smaller ones, but actually they're a brick in the wall. When I'm trying to create a story, I need these papers to be able to cite to give a little bit. So I'm always writing these small papers, which I see as filling a brick hole space in a wall. It's a very nice way of doing research to try to think of ways of you're trying to build walls or trying to create a perfect sphere. Mm. And like you say, you know, doing clinical medicine is is brilliant, but you know, having some of the answers or you know, knowing what answers, you know, what are, you know, what are the questions that we have in medicine that need answering is really interesting. And being able to do that must be really rewarding, you know, as, you know, really rewarding uh, as a researcher. But yeah, Professor Adelson, thank, thank you for, for joining us on the Geeky Medics podcast. It's, it's been brilliant. Not at all. Thanks for that. Thank you for inviting me.
you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more from us, please consider subscribing through your podcast provider. We've just released a collection of over 300 OSCE stations, providing everything you need to practice OSCEs, including patient scripts, examiner checklists, and performance insights. You can learn more at geekymedics.com forward slash OSCE stations. As always, thanks to the producers of the podcast, Emma Harvey and Lewis Potter.